I'll pray then we'll get started. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to be in your word again. Lord, it's a huge privilege to be hearing the words of life. Lord, your Bible, it brings life, it brings joy, it brings purity, it brings strength. And Lord, you reveal yourself through your word. And Lord, you esteem it higher than your own name. So help us to esteem your word as higher than everything else in our lives too. And with the exception of you, of course. To make every effort to do what your word tells us to do. And the first and foremost thing is to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love others as ourselves. So we just pray these things and I pray you'll give us understanding as we go through. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, this is Revelation 6, The Tribulation Explained, Part 3, and it's how to read the book of Revelation. In the last two sermons, we demonstrated that the events in Revelation are simply an expansion or added detail to other Old and New Testament prophecies. And the most important one, which you spent a bit of time on last week, was Daniel 9, 24-27. So today, just as a reminder, we'll just read verse 27, so that's up on the screen for you. And this is the part of the 77's prophecy that deals specifically with the tribulation. And this will set us up to go through chapter 6 through 19 in Revelation and get an overview of the large section of the book of Revelation that deals with these seven years predicted in Daniel 9.27. So there's actually a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament that deals with the last seven years. There's a lot we can learn about this. So first off, Daniel 9.27. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. Okay, so what's one set of seven mean? Seven years. Yeah, one week, one seven, seven years. Okay, remember it's a 77's prophecy, 490 years. And those years were sabbatical years. Every seven years would be a year of rest. Every seven is a period of seven years. So the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So it's going to go through it quickly. And what we're going to see is what this verse tells us in like dot point, if you want to call it that, very brief. It's going to be expanded upon as we go through Revelation. So the ruler is the Roman prince who is to come, and that's a reference back to verse 26. He is the Antichrist. He makes a treaty with the people, okay, or the many. The word the people here is a specific reference to Israel not a general reference to a group. The ancient Hebrew says covenant with the many. Okay, so it's talking about the nation of Israel. And the treaty or covenant. So with this covenant, Israel will embrace the Antichrist as a political Messiah and quite possibly the literal Messiah. They'll believe that this guy is the Messiah. Now, Jesus predicted this in John 5.43 where it says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So that was John 5.43. And it's for a period of one set of seven, as we just talked about, that's one week of years, seven years. And it's also 2,520 days or 84 months. But after half this time, now, half of 2,520 days is 1,260 days or 42 months. And you see those references, those time references throughout the book of Revelation. I'm just going to look at two because this will help us for today as well. So the first one is Revelation 11.3. And it says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So that first one, Revelation 11.3, refers to the two witnesses that will prophesy from Jerusalem. They'll be in Jerusalem. And we'll learn about them today a little bit as we go through our survey of Revelation 6 through 19. But simply put, they are God's two very special prophets who are supernaturally protected and will have a supernatural ministry. These guys will be doing lots of miracles. They will truly be a thorn in the side of the Antichrist and anyone who follows him. These two prophets or witnesses are given or allocated 1,260 days to prophesy, and this corresponds to the first half of the tribulation, while the Israelites are still in the land before they get kicked out when the Antichrist breaks his covenant. Secondly, we have Revelation 12.6, and that says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. So. Again, we know that the Antichrist is going to go to the temple, defile it, call himself God, and he's going to turn on the people of Israel. He's going to attack them, and God is going to provide shelter for them, a protected place. And that's for the last half of the tribulation, 1,260 days. And that will be in the land of Jordan. Okay, back to Daniel 9.27, and it says there, He will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Again. As mentioned in Revelation, this is when the Antichrist turns against the Jews, breaking his seven-year peace treaty with them at the midpoint of the tribulation. And this treaty will allow the temple to be rebuilt next to the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount, and the Jews will once again be offering animal sacrifices according to the law. But the Antichrist is going to break his peace treaty with them and stop this. And when he does this, the next part says, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Now, this is the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke about that we learned about last week. And Paul also talked about this. The Antichrist will desecrate Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. We'll just read one of those verses. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call good and every object of worship. He will even sit in the Temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Also, Revelation 13.5-8 tells us that he will blaspheme God and will make war with and overcome the saints and the unbelievers will worship him. He will be given this authority to be proclaiming himself as God for the last 42 months, the last half of the tribulation, the time after he defiles the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. Back to Daniel 9.27. Until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Revelation 19.20 
tells us that the Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. (laughs) They will be the first guests in hotel torment. The very first guests in hotel torment. And you never leave. So, as a summary, overall, first, the church, which is every living believer, is going to be snatched up out of this world to meet Jesus in the air, and then we go to be with him in heaven for those seven years of the tribulation. Then right after the rapture, soon after the rapture, the Antichrist will be revealed or unveiled, and he will immediately mesmerize his world. He's going to be an amazing leader, amazing orator. And the world will be going through, or it already is, the world will be going through some really tough times and it will be desperate for a strong leader who can apparently solve all their problems. Now, the good thing is that according to what the scriptures say, we're not going to be there. That's how I understand it. Now, as we learned last week, this is also going to be the fulfillment of why God created Israel. They are going to accomplish what God created them for, to be a light for the Gentiles. They are going to do in seven years what they haven't done in the whole history. They are going to evangelize the whole world. And who's going to do that? 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. 144,000 Israeli evangelists from the 12 tribes of Israel. They are going to be specially anointed and specially gifted. We'll see that as we go through chapter 7. So it's really important that we understand that this is one of the things that the Israelites have not completely fulfilled and that they are there in the tribulation to do it. Now the second reason God has for the tribulation is that God is going to use this to drive the Israelis to despair. Okay, This suffering is going to force them to look up and see who their real Messiah is. Zechariah 12.10 says, speaking about the, the very end of the tribulation, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. So when Jesus comes back, they will see him in his glorified body but still bearing the scars of the crucifixion. So it's all pre-written. When Jesus comes back to the earth with the church, I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too on your white horses. Yeah. The Jews will see Jesus' wounds and they will feel personally responsible for them. They'll realize what they've done, what they did when they rejected their Messiah. And during the seven years, the 144,000 are going to be incredibly effective in bringing many, many people to faith in Christ. And another important observation that we make as we go through the book of Revelation is that nothing happens on earth until it is established in heaven. Nothing happens on earth until it is established in heaven. God is in control. We might think things are out of control on this earth, but everything that happens on earth first gets to go ahead, the green light from Jesus in heaven. So God is in control of everything that happens down here. 
whether good or bad. He has a plan for everything. He has overall authority. Now, let's get into our overview of the chapters. And we're going to start right from the beginning, just really, really quickly through the first few. Chapter 1 of Revelation is Jesus revealing himself to John. Chapters 2 and 3 represent the church age chronologically, the seven stages of church history from Pentecost to the rapture. And we're currently in the last stage of church history, the Laodicean or lukewarm church, the compromising church. Chapter 4 shows the church in heaven come up here. And that's the rapture and the church is before the throne of God. Chapter 5, we spent a couple of weeks in chapter 5, and that's the saints, the elders, us, watching the throne of God, looking for an official legal justification for the judgments that are about to fall on the earth. God the Father is holding the title deed for the earth in his hands. Who's going to take it? Who is worthy to open the seals. Remember John cried because there was no one there, no one worthy. But then the line of the tribe of Judah comes forward and he takes this scroll. Of course, it's Jesus as a lamb who had been slain. So chapter 5 asks the question, who is worthy to open the seals and unleash these judgments on the earth? Now all these judgments are contained in the scroll. Okay, so everything we read in the book of Revelation is all contained originally in the scroll that was in the hand of the Father. Jesus takes it and he opens it sequentially and these things happen. So it works like this. The seventh seal, so you've got the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth seal, and then the seventh seal is actually the seven trumpet judgments. It's like a one of those telescopes that you, you pull out and it gets longer. It's telescopic. And so the seventh seal judgment becomes the seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment opens and you have the seven golden bowl judgments. Again, they overlap and the last one of the first two series becomes the, the next seven. So... Jesus is the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And so everything we see in Revelation is Jesus doing his thing as he judges the earth. So now we come to chapter 6, and this is where your handout starts. The beginning of Jesus opening the seven seals and unleashing judgment on the earth. So from chapter 6 to chapter 19, of the book of Revelation, we have this chronological unfolding of the events that are going to happen in the seven years of the tribulation that the prophet Daniel predicted would precede the coming of the Messiah. Now, yes, it is chronological, but if you've read it, it's confusing. Why? Well, it's all got to do with the peculiar writing style of the Hebrews. The Israelites had this way of writing. So as an example, I want you to think back to the first two chapters of Genesis. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you have chapter 1. And it's day 1, day 2, 
day three, yeah? It's like dot points, this happened, this happened, this happened, and it's strictly chronological. Then, in chapter two, what does Moses do? He goes back into chapter one, and he goes back to day six, and he starts to talk about and expand on the events that happened in day six. Now, what did God make on day six? People, yeah. And so in chapter one, it's just, you know, the creation of man just gets barely a mention. But that's the most important part of creation. And so chapter two, Moses expands on what was written in chapter one on day six, and he gives a whole chapter on the creation of man and woman. And so it's like a, a vignette. It's like a a story. You get the chronology, you get the outline of the order that things happen, but then you get this expansion, a little story to explain more about those events. Things that God wants emphasized, things that God thinks are important. And so that's just a typical writing style of the Hebrews. And you might say that, well, Revelation is New Testament, is written in Greek, but John was a Hebrew. He grew up in the Hebrew culture, and so that's how they used to write. So under the inspiration, John writes Revelation, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes Revelation, and he shows the chronology, but in addition to the main facts, he intersperses through chapters 6 through 19, these vignettes which explain the main characters, main purposes, and the main organizations that we find in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation would be very hard to understand without these little stories, these little explanations of who these main people, organizations, and characters are. It tells us where they came from, why they're here, what they're going to do. So some of these vignettes, they go right back to the start of Israel. Some of them go right back to the fall of Satan himself. Okay, So they actually go outside the scope of the tribulation. So which chapters are chronological and which chapters are vignettes or explanations, little stories that help us to understand the big story, the tribulation? Well, chapters 6, 8, 9, 16 and 19 are the ones who carry the story forward. So if you look there, one of the columns, it says vignette or chronological, and you can see I've written either vignette or chronological next to the chapter number. And so as you go through, you can see if it's a chronological chapter, it's, it's pushing it forward, or it's explanation of what's happening. So chapter 6 is the first chronological chapter that describes a seven-year tribulation. It describes the first six seal judgments, and the first seal is the Antichrist conquers by peace. The second seal, we have World War Three. Third seal, there's famine, worldwide famine. The fourth seal, a quarter of the earth's population dies. The fifth seal, we have the martyred tribulation saints under the altar. So this tells us it's not going to be a pretty place for those who believe. Sixth seal, there's a great earthquake. And we're going to go through these next week. So there's quite a bit in there. So that's for next week. Now, chapter 7 is the first vignette, the first little story that explains things. And in chapter 7, God explains God's grace. He explains God's grace. Now, Jesus has the right to judge the world. 
That's very true. But what does he do? He always shows mercy in judgment. Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2. It says, I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. Do you like that? And in your anger, remember your mercy. That was Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2. So basically what chapter 7 is it describes is God's calling of 144,000 evangelists who offer salvation to this Christ-rejecting world. So right in the midst of all this judgment, it shows that even in the midst of judgment, God still shows grace. And we see that as he disciplines us too. You know, he disciplines us, but he shows us so much grace. And he's not going to have the earth without having a witness. I believe the church is going to be caught up before the tribulation starts, so there's no believers left. So chapter 7 begins with an angel saying, Do not hurt the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. So these are Jewish evangelists. So if anyone thinks that there are lost tribes, well, God knows where they are. He even knows where 12,000 of them are, that he wants to use in this special way. So chapter 7 explains God's grace in having evangelism during this time. And I believe that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are chosen, sealed, and supernaturally protected from the start of the tribulation, and they survive right through to the end. And we'll get more details when we look at chapter 14. And chapter 7 also tells us that there's going to be this huge multitude of people who will believe because of the witness of these amazing Jewish evangelists. Okay, now Revelation chapter 8 is another chronological chapter. It describes the seventh seal judgment, which, as I said, expands into the seven trumpet judgments. Okay, so the seventh seal judgment becomes the seven trumpet judgments. So the first trumpet, one third of all trees and all the grain or the grass is burned up. The second trumpet judgment, one-third of the sea is turned to blood. The third trumpet judgment, one-third of the fresh water is poisoned. The fourth trumpet judgment, partial darkness over the earth. And now we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a continuation of the trumpet judgments. This is also chronological. So the fifth trumpet judgment, there's immense torment for five months with no death allowed during this time. This is going to be like the worst time to be alive ever. If you're not a believer, you're going to be suffering immense agony. You're not going to want to be alive, and you're going to want to die. But God's not going to let you for five months. And then the sixth trumpet, there's this army of 200 million, and they kill one-third of the remaining population. So if you do the math, it's now one-half of the Earth's population gone. So now we come to chapter 10. This is the second vignette, the second story which explains things. And this is like a gracious interlude after the seal and the trumpet judgments and before the horrific golden bowl judgments, which are beyond 
anyone's imagination. So think about this. Half the world's population is already dead. And the worst is still yet to come. So God is like allowing people to sit back and say, okay, what's just happened here? <laughs> and God's giving them a chance to repent and to be saved. Now the next or third vignette is chapter 11. And this is one of the strangest one of them all. It begins by predicting that the temple will be rebuilt by the Israelites. The Jewish temple will be rebuilt. It's going to be built over the site of their previous temples in the same place. And yet the court of the Gentiles is said to be left out because it has been given over to the Gentiles. Now, we've been there and other people have been there. And you can mark a line from the eastern gate across and you can work out how much room the temple would need and the inner court. And guess what? There's still enough room to have the temple standing there with the inner court walls and have 21 metres. How Lindsay measured that. So in the inner court, you have the court of the priests, the court of the men, and the court of the women. But the court of the Gentiles, the very outer court, is not to be measured because in that space is the dome of the rock. And chapter 11 explains God's grace again in sending two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament back. And they become a thorn in the side of everyone who is not saved. They are hated by the world. They will preach and nobody will be able to shut them up. Seriously, anyone who tries to shut them up will die. They have the power, the authority to kill anyone who wants to hurt them. They will preach for the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, most people think they are Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, they left their calling cards. <laughs> it says that during the first three and a half years, during their ministry, it won't rain. And what did Elijah do? He prophesied it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. Yeah, back in Kings and that. And then they will turn water to blood. Who did that? That was Moses, okay? And we also have the story or the event of the transfiguration. Jesus told his disciples that there were some standing there who would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man come in his glory. Then six days later, it says that Jesus took three of them up onto a mountaintop and they got an exact preview of coming attractions. It's like watching a movie trailer. Light just started shining out of Jesus. He just became brilliant white. And they saw him as he is now in his glorified body. Bright, shining, just glory oozing out of him, like blazing out of him. And yeah, just incredible. And who was talking to Jesus on that mountaintop? Moses and Elijah. And God, the Father, speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So this chapter shows that God will send His two greatest prophets to warn the world of the false Messiah, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. It then shows how the two prophets will be murdered by the Antichrist. So this shows that God is absolutely justified in all the fierce judgments that He will pour out on the earth. Because instead of having any sympathy for these prophets after the Antichrist has murdered them, 
the world has a holiday. It's like a satanic Christmas, like we give gifts to each other at Christmas. Well, they're going to have this holiday. This is halfway through the tribulation, and the world is going to have this massive celebration. Hey, the two witnesses are dead. And they're going to let their bodies rot on the ground, lying in the streets, with the whole world seeing them. And this points to the technology that has only been fairly recently developed. People in the past, when they read this, said, oh, that's allegorical because that's impossible. But now we're in the 21st century, it's not impossible, it's normal. Okay, So the Bible knew this all along. The people are going to be watching these bodies rotting on the ground, and then three and a half days later, bang, God says, come up here and these guys resurrect and ascend into heaven. As I said, that's a three and a half year point. They witnessed for the first three and a half years, 1,260 days, and then they're killed and they ascend. Now, what is this? God is, in essence, removing his two official ambassadors. Now, when a country removes its ambassadors, what does it mean? War. Okay, you take your messengers out of there and you get ready to fight. When countries have disagreements and they're not working together, they remove their, they take back their ambassadors. And it's at this point that the Roman Antichrist will sit in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God after these prophets are raised from the dead. So that's what chapter 11 is all about, and we'll investigate that more when we get there. Now the next or fourth vignette is chapter 12, and this is all about Israel and the mystery of anti-Semitism. And it adds one of the major reasons why Christ is judging this Christ-rejecting world. It's because of the way that the world has mistreated the nation of Israel. God created Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. All the other nations are going away from God and trying to push the knowledge of God out of their memory. It was becoming more and more wicked. So God creates this nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his desire, his will, was that he would deposit in this nation his written revelation and they would preserve it. And they did, and we have it. It's the Bible. And this is how we know, through their obedience or disobedience, that God is the true God. And despite God judging Israel when they disobeyed, he never ever let them go. He just kept on showing mercy to them. So through Israel, we have the Saviour as well. Okay, So Satan doesn't like this. Satan has always been against Israel because they are God's light to the world. Jesus came through the nation of Israel. And Satan hates anything to do with saving people. He's always working against God's plans, and so he has a special hate for the nation of Israel. Chapter 13 is another vignette. So, you understanding these little stories as we go through? As you go through the chapters, just giving a brief snapshot of each one. So when you come back to read the book of Revelation, you go, oh, I get the main thrust of this now, the main gist of this. So, chapter 13 is a fifth vignette or explanation. And it's a prophetic biography of the careers of the Roman Antichrist and the false prophet. 
Now these two are the main characters of this period. And so it gives you a prophetic biography of these two people. It shows what they'll be like and what they will do. It's an important chapter, so we'll learn more about them when we get there. Chapter 14 is a sixth vignette and describes the ultimate victory of the 144,000 and Christ's special connection to them. It shows them at the end of the tribulation, all standing on Mount Zion with Jesus. It shows that they are on the earth. Jesus will miraculously protect them from being killed during the tribulation. That's how it seems. That's how I read it. So they will suffer, but none of the 144,000 will die, despite all the terrible judgments that will happen during the seven-year tribulation. And many believe that it's about these 144,000 that Jesus refers to in Matthew 25, where he says, I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you gave me food. And he says, "It as much as you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. So it seems that this is a sign of whether somebody is a believer or unbeliever, how we treat the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, probably the other believers as well. But remember that Matthew 25, the sheep and goat judgment, is referring to the judgment of the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation period. So if you help the 144,000, you're risking your life. And so it's basically, if you'd only help them if you're a believer. So chapter 14 describes the ultimate victory that comes to 144,000 after they have worked through the whole seven years. And again, it shows the guilt of the world by their rejection of these 144,000 witnesses. So God is very fair. Now chapter 15, the seventh vignette, it talks about the victory of the martyrs who died for their faith during the tribulation. This is a very dark but also very beautiful picture. Most of the people who believe in Jesus during the tribulation will die. It says, blessed are they who die. (laughs) It's better to die than to live during this time. Because if you die, you go straight to heaven. And you're rid of all this persecution and suffering. So you think it's hard to believe in Jesus now? Well, it'd be much harder if you wait until after the rapture and you're in the tribulation. Chapter 15 also shows something that is really, really, I believe, frightening. God's grace is finally exhausted. It seems that from this point there is no more grace. And this opens the way for chapter 16, which carries us forward chronologically. Chapter 16 is the bold judgments. Chapter 16 shows the greatest, most fearsome, most destructive judgments that will hit the earth. When we go through that, (laughs) I'm going to show you some things that are there that will show you that you don't want to be close, even close to planet Earth. (laughs) It's going to be terrifying. And no wonder, Jesus says, unless those days were shortened, no one would survive. Because you look at the environmental destruction and it's just like, how can you live? Now, after this, we have two more vignettes in chapter 17 and 18. Chapter 17 explains the mystery of Babylon. And it shows the religious aspect of the Antichrist system. It shows that Mystery Babylon started a long time ago with Nimrod in the plain there in the Tower of Babel. And how it will reach the zenith or climax or the peak of its power under the Antichrist during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It will become 
the one world religion. Then we go to chapter 18, and this vignette is the explanation of the mystery Babylon in the economic aspect. So you have the mystery Babylon for the one world religion, and you also have the mystery Babylon for the economic system. That's what this is in chapter 18, and it shows how that will happen. So I won't go through all that now. We'll go through that when we get there. And chapter 19 is the last chapter that describes the tribulation. It's chronological. It describes what happened when Jesus comes back with the church to claim it as his own. The Antichrist and his armies are destroyed and the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. They will be the first ones to experience this dark and awful place. They will be there forever. Hotel torment, as I was joking around before. And then chapter 20 shows what will happen immediately after the Lord comes back and the tribulation is finished. So this is after the tribulation now, which is just finish off the book. It happens immediately after the Lord comes back and the tribulation is finished, and it introduces the kingdom that Jesus will establish. The kingdom was promised throughout the Old Testament. You've heard those scriptures about the lion laying down with the lamb and, and things like that. This is it. This is the kingdom. The only thing that wasn't known in the Old Testament was how long the kingdom would last. Well, it tells us in chapter 20, it will be 1,000 years. Then in chapter 21, it describes the creation of the new heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem. The new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Here we enter into eternity with no more sin or death forevermore. Everyone will have received their glorified bodies, all the believers, and will be incapable of sinning. Our sin nature will be done away with, cut away completely. Not hanging off us like it is now. And chapter 22 further describes what the new world is like and tells us that we will reign forever and ever with Christ. It then finishes with an exhortation and a warning that Jesus is coming back and that when he does come back, it will happen suddenly or unexpectedly. So that's basically our quick run through the entire book of Revelation. So it shows you how you've got these little stories that explain the main people, organization, and events, and or groups of people, and how it all fits together. So just before we finish and we take communion together, I want to just look at an example of how what John saw when he received the visions that became the book of Revelation, how that affected what he wrote in the Gospel of John. Now, you know the super Bible scholars, <laughs> the higher critical school, which are not really higher, but they're very critical. These august theologians who attempt to tear the Bible apart and say it's full of errors and all that, one of their favorite things they like to do is say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, are more historic than the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John takes things from an entirely different point of view. So if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're very different to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of follow the same storyline. The Gospel of John is very different. Why? Well, John on the island of Patmos, he saw the end of the world. He saw 
the church go up, he saw Jesus judge the world and then the thousand-year kingdom and eternity future and everything. And the other gospel writers, they didn't have this insight, but John did. And I just want to go through one scripture in John, which will encourage us in our faith as well as show us that what John saw on the island of Patmos, well, when he was there and when he had this vision, and he was taken up into eternity to see these things happen in the future, how they affected what he wrote in the book of John. So I'm just going to put John chapter 5, verse 19 up. He says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. So notice that the Son can do nothing of himself. So while Jesus was on earth, he only used his human power, just like we only have human power. Nothing he did, the miracles he performed, anything that he did, he did not use his divine power. Now, if he did, he would have disqualified himself from being the Son of Man, the Saviour of the world. He had to be a true man, fully human. And so the Holy Spirit was the power that enabled Jesus to do all the miracles that he did. And it's the same thing for us. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to do everything. We do it by faith. And then it keeps going in John, verses 20 to 24. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so even the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to who? To the Son. That all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life already. This has everlasting life. Past tense. And shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. Now, this is the encouragement I want to bring out this morning. This is awesome. We have already, past tense, passed out of death and into life. That's not going to be decided when you die. <laughs> it's already decided. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's a judgment of rewards. If you're before the judgment seat of Christ, the reward judgment, being a seat, then you're there because you're saved and you get rewarded for the things you did by faith. And keeping going in John, skipping down to verse 27, John chapter 5, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, what does that remind you of in Revelation? For me, it's chapter 5. It's when Jesus takes the scroll. He has given him the authority. Who is worthy to take the scroll? Yeah? Who is worthy to take the scroll? Jesus, it says here, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, in his humanity, Jesus lives a pure life. Okay? And he was the propitiation, the sacrifice, the payment for our sins. 
And in verse 28, continues in John 5, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done the good, the good, singular, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done the evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. So why is that singular, the good and the evil? Because there's only one thing that will cause you to be separated from God. And there is only one reason that a person will go to be in the presence of God forever. What's that? To believe that Jesus died in your place for all your sins, meaning from your birth to your death. All means all. So when we believe in him, repent and we believe and put our trust in that his payment on the cross was a payment for our sins, we pass from death to life. So again, I just want to remind us that Jesus is given the authority to execute judgment because he is a son of man. doesn't use the title son of God. He uses his title son of man. It doesn't mean he's not God, but here it's talking about his work as a man defeating Satan, living this perfect life, and getting the title deed of the earth back. Satan won it by getting Adam to reject God's word and to voluntarily reject relationship with God. And so by default, the ownership of the title deed of the earth went to Satan. So it had to be another man who would be perfect, who would voluntarily die to pay the penalty of sin and only he would be worthy to get the title deed of the earth back. And along with that, have the legal authority to judge the earth. And that's Revelation 5. So, also in chapter 10 of Revelation, there's this vignette of John eating the little book or scroll. Jesus is coming back and we will rule and reign with him. And that's sweet, because he eats this scroll. The angel says, eat this, and it's a scroll. And he eats it, and it tastes really nice, but when it's in his stomach, it's really bitter. So it's both sweet and it's bitter. So the sweet part is we're saved. This is awesome. The bitter part is the judgment to come. There's going to be a lot of pain and suffering to come. The message that we have to share is difficult for people to hear. It's bitter. But there's also a sweetness about it, which is the salvation the forgiveness of our sins, the being forever with Jesus. So let us be thankful that we are in Christ, and if you are not in Christ, just to repent of your sins and ask God to forgive you based on the fact that he paid the penalty for your sins when he died for you on the cross. So I'm just going to pray for the, the bread and the wine here, and we can receive that and just uh, contemplate what we've just been talking about that Jesus has made the way for us to be back in relationship with him, to be clean, to be pure, to be declared innocent in his sight. So Father, I just thank you for the work you've done on the cross. Lord, the bread represents your body broken for us. Your blood represents your blood, your life that was shed, the blood that was shed for us, your life given for us. And it cleanses us from our sins. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for the power that is in these two symbols, Lord. Without them, there is no 
a forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all those sheep and goats and bulls and birds, they could not forgive any sins. They were just pictures. And we would be forever lost if it wasn't for the sacrifice of you, Jesus, on the cross. So as we partake of these emblems, Lord, just help us to be thankful for what you've done for us. And Lord, also, as your scriptures say, do this in remembrance of me. We're not just remembering the first coming, what you've done, but we're also remembering the second coming, what you will do. And before you come back, there's going to be judgment on this world. So help us to warn people, Lord, not just to sit back and enjoy our salvation, but Lord, to warn people, because we're your ambassadors. We're telling people that there's a judgment to come. Help us to remember the second coming. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.